Section 16, Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 1. General View of the Remainder of My Life. From this time, what is worth relating of my life will come into a very small compass. For I have no further mental changes to tell of, but only, as I hope, a continued mental process, which does not admit of a consecutive history, and the results of which, if real, will be best found in my writings. I shall, therefore, greatly abridge the chronicle of my subsequent years. The first use I made of the leisure which I gained by disconnecting myself from the review was to finish the logic. In July and August 1838, I had found an interval in which to execute what was still undone of the original draft of the third book. In working out the logical theory of those laws of nature, which are not laws of causation nor corollaries from such laws, I was led to recognize kinds as realities in nature and not mere distinctions for convenience, a light which I had not obtained when the first book was written and which made it necessary for me to modify and enlarge several chapters of that book. The book on language and classification and the chapter on the classification of fallacies were drafted in the autumn of the same year the remainder of the work in the summer and autumn of 1840. From April following to the end of 1841, my spare time was devoted to a complete rewriting of the book from its commencement. It is in this way that all my books have been composed. They were always written at least twice over. A first draft of the entire work was completed to the very end of the subject, then the whole begun again de novo, but incorporating in the second writing all sentences and parts of sentences of the old draft, which appeared as suitable to my purpose as anything which I could write in lieu of them. I have found great advantages in this system of double redaction. It combines, better than any other mode of composition, the freshness and vigor of the first conception with the superior precision and completeness resulting from prolonged thought. In my own case, moreover, I have found that the patience necessary for a careful elaboration of the details of composition and expression costs much less effort after the entire subject has been once gone through and the substance of all that I find to say has in some manner, however imperfect, been got upon paper. The only thing which I am grateful in the first draft to make as practical as I am able is the arrangement. If that is bad, the whole thread on which the ideas string themselves becomes twisted. Thoughts placed in a wrong connection are not expounded in a manner that suits the right, and the first draft with this original vice is next to useless as a foundation for the final treatment. 
during the rewriting of the logic dr whewell's philosophy of the inductive sciences made its appearance a circumstance fortunate for me as it gave me what i really desired a full treatment of the subject by an antagonist and enabled me to present my ideas with greater clearness and emphasis as well as fuller and more varied development in defending them against definite objections or confronting them distinctly with an opposite theory the controversies with dr whewell as well as much matter derived from comte were first introduced into the book in the course of the rewriting at the end of eighteen forty one the book being ready for the press i offered it to murray who kept it until too late for publication that season and then refused it for reasons which could just as well have been given at first but i have no cause to regret a rejection which led to my offering it to mr parker by whom it was published in the spring of eighteen forty three my original expectations of success were extremely limited archbishop whatley had indeed rehabilitated the name of logic and the study of the forms rules and fallacies of ratiocination and dr whewell's writings had begun to execute an interest in the other part of my subject the theory of induction a treatise however on a matter so abstract could not be expected to be popular it could only be a book for students and students on such subjects uh, were not only at least in england few but addicted chiefly to the opposite school of metaphysics the ontological and innate principles school i therefore did not expect that the book would have many readers or approvers and looked for little practical effect from it save that of keeping the tradition unbroken of what i thought a better philosophy what hopes i had of exciting any immediate attention were mainly grounded on the polemical properties of dr whewell who i thought from observation of his conduct in other cases would probably do something to bring the book into notice but replying and that promptly to the attack on his opinions he did reply but not until eighteen fifty just in time for me to answer him in the third edition how the book came to have for a work of the kind so much success and what sort of persons compose the book of those who have bought i will not venture to say read it i have never thoroughly understood but taken in conjunction with the many proofs which have been since given of a revival of speculation speculation too of a free kind in many quarters and above all where at one time i should have least expected it in the universities the fact becomes particularly intelligible i have never indulged the illusion that the book had made any considerable impression on philosophical opinion the german or a priori view of human knowledge and of the knowing faculties is likely for some time longer though it may be hoped in a diminishing degree to predominate among those who occupy themselves with such inquiries both here and on the continent 
but the system of logic supplies what was much wanted a textbook of the opposite doctrine that which derives all knowledge from experience and all moral and intellectual qualities principally from the direction given to the associations i make as humble an estimate as anybody of what either an analysis of logical processes or any possible canons of evidence can do by themselves towards guiding or rectifying the operations of the understanding combined with other requisites i certainly do think them of great use but whatever may be the practical value of a true philosophy of these matters it is hardly possible to exaggerate the mischiefs of a false one the notion that truths external to the mind may be known by intuition or consciousness independently of observation and experience is i am persuaded in these times the great intellectual support of false doctrines and bad institutions by the aid of this theory every inveterate belief and every intense feeling of which the origin is not remembered is enabled to dispense with the obligation of justifying itself by reason and is erected into its own all-sufficient voucher and justification there never was such an instrument devised for consecrating all deep-seated prejudices and the chief strength of this false philosophy in morals politics and religion lies in the appeal which it is accustomed to make to the evidence of mathematics and of the cognate branches of physical science to expel it from these is to drive it from its stronghold and because this had never been effectually done the intuitive school even after what my father had written in his analysis of the mind had in appearance as far as published writings were concerned on the whole the best of the argument in attempting to clear up the real nature of the evidence of mathematical and physical truths the system of logic met with intuitive philosophers on ground on which they had previously been deemed unassailable and gave its own explanation from experience and association of that peculiar character of what are called necessary truths which is adduced as proof that their evidence must come from a deeper source than experience. Whether this has been done effectually is still sub judice, and even then to deprive a mode of thought so strongly rooted in human prejudices and partialities of its mere speculative support goes but a very little way towards overcoming it. But though only a step, it is a quiet, indispensable one for since after all prejudice can only be successfully combated by philosophy no way can really be made against it permanently until it has been shown not to have philosophy on its side being now released from active concerns and temporary politics and from any literary occupation involving personal communication with contributors and others, I was enabled to indulge the inclination 
natural to thinking persons when the age of boyish vanity is once past for limiting my own society to a very few persons general society as now carried on in england is so insipid an affair even to the persons who make it what it is that it is kept up for any reason rather than the pleasure it affords all serious discussion on matters on which opinions differ being considered ill-bred and the national deficiency in liveliness and sociability having prevented the cultivation of the art of talking agreeably on trifles in which the french of the last century much excelled the sole attraction of what is called society to those who are not at the top of the tree is the hope of being aided to climb a little higher in it while to those who are already at the top it is chiefly a compliance with custom and with the supposed requirements of their station to a person of any but a common order in thought or feeling such society unless he has personal objects to serve by it must be supremely unattractive and most people in the present day of any really high class of intellect make their contact with it so slight and at such long intervals as to be almost considered as retiring from it altogether those persons of any mental superiority who do otherwise are almost without exception greatly deteriorated by it not to mention loss of time the tone of their feelings is lowered they become less in earnest about those of their opinions respecting which they must remain silent in the society they frequent they come to look upon their most elevated objects as unpractical or at least too remote from realization to be more than a vision or a theory and if more fortunate than most they retain their higher principles unimpaired yet with respect to the persons and affairs of their own day they insensibly adopt the modes of feelings and judgment in which they can hope for sympathy from the company they keep a person of high intellect should never go into unintellectual society unless he can enter it as an apostle yet he is the only person with high objects who can safely enter it at all persons even of intellectual aspirations had much better if they can make their habitual associates of at least their equals and as far as possible their superiors in knowledge intellect and elevation of sentiment moreover if the character is formed and the mind made up on the few cardinal points of human opinion agreement of conviction and feeling on these has been felt in all times to be an essential requisite of anything worthy the name of friendship in a really earnest mind all these circumstances united made the number very small of those whose society and still more whose intimacy i now voluntarily sought among these by far the principal was the incomparable friend of whom i have already spoken 
at this period she lived mostly with one young daughter in a quiet part of the country and only occasionally in town with her husband mr taylor i visited her equally in both places and was greatly indebted to the strength of character which enabled her to disregard the false interpretations liable to be put on the frequency of my visits to her while living generally apart from mr taylor and on our occasionally travelling together though in all other respects our conduct during those years gave not the slightest ground for any other supposition than the true one that our relation to each other at that time was one of strong affection and confidential intimacy only for though we did not consider the ordinances of society binding on a subject so entirely personal we did feel bound that our conduct should be such as in no degree to bring discredit on her husband nor therefore on herself in this third person as it may be termed of my mental progress which now went hand in hand with hers my opinions gained equally in breadth and depth i understood more things than those which i had understood before i now more thoroughly i had now completely turned back from what there had been of excess in my reaction against benthamism i had at the height of that reaction certainly become much more indulgent to the common opinions of society in the world and more willing to be content with seconding the superficial improvement which had begun to take place in those common opinions than became one whose convictions on so many points differed fundamentally from them i was much more inclined than i can now prove to put in abeyance the more decidedly heretical part of my opinions which i now look upon as almost the only ones the assertion of which tends in any way to regenerate society but in addition to this our opinions were far more heretical than mine had been in the days of my most extreme benthamism in those days i had seen little further than the old school of political economists into the possibilities of fundamental improvement in social arrangements private property as now understood and inheritance appeared to me as to them the dernier mot of legislation and i looked no further than to mitigating the inequalities consequent on these institutions by getting rid of primogeniture and entails the notion that it was possible to go further than this in removing the injustice for injustice it is whether admitting of a complete remedy or not involved in the fact that some are born to riches and the vast majority to poverty i then reckoned chimerical and only hoped that by universal education leading to voluntary restraint on population the portion of the poor might be made more tolerable in short i was a democrat but not the least of a socialist we were now much less democrats than i had been because so long as education continues to be so wretchedly imperfect we dreaded the ignorance and especially the selfishness and brutality of the mass 
but our ideal of ultimate improvement went far beyond democracy and would class us decidedly under the general designation of socialists while we repudiated with the greatest energy that tyranny of society over the individual which most socialist systems are supposed to involve we yet look forward to a time when society will no longer be divided into the idle and the industrious when the rule that they who do not work shall not eat will be applied not to paupers only but impartially to all when the divisions of the produce of labor instead of depending as in so great a degree it now does on the accident of birth will be made by concert on an acknowledged principle of justice and when it will no longer either be or be thought to be impossible for human beings to exert themselves strenuously in procuring benefits which are not to be exclusively their own but to be shared with the society they belong to the social problem of the future we consider to be how to unite the greatest individual liberty of action with a common ownership in the raw material of the globe and an equal participation of all in the benefits of combined labor we had not the presumption to suppose that we could already foresee by what precise form of institutions these objects could most effectually be attained or at how near or how distant a period they would become practicable we saw clearly that to render any such social transformation either possible or desirable an equivalent change of character must take place both in the uncultivated herd who now compose the laboring masses and in the immense majority of their employers both these classes must learn by practice to labor and combine for generous or at all events for public and social purposes and not as hitherto solely for narrowly interested ones but the capacity to do this has always existed in mankind and is not nor is ever likely to be extinct education habit and the cultivation of the sentiments will make a common man dig or weave for his country as readily as fight for his country true enough it is only by slow degrees and a system of culture prolonged through successive generations that men in general can be brought up to this point but the hindrance is not in the essential constitution of human nature interest in the common good is at present so weak a motive in the generality not because it can never be otherwise but because the mind is not accustomed to dwell on it as it dwells from morning till night on things which tend only to personal advantage when called into activity as only self-interest now is by the daily course of life and spurred from behind by the love of distinction and the fear of shame it is capable of producing even in common men the most strenuous exertions as well as the most heroic sacrifices 
the deep-rooted selfishness which forms the general character of the existing state of society is so deeply rooted only because the whole course of existing institutions tends to foster it and modern institutions in some respects more than ancient since the occasions on which the individual is called on to do anything for the public without receiving its pay are far less frequent in modern life than the smaller commonwealths of antiquity these considerations did not make us overlook the folly of premature attempts to dispense with the inducements of private interest in social affairs while no substitute for them has been or can be provided but we regarded all existing institutions and social arrangements as being in a phrase i once heard from austin merely provisional and we welcome with the greatest pleasure and interest all socialistic experiments by select individuals such as the cooperative societies which whether they succeeded or failed could not but operate as a most useful education for those who took their part in them by cultivating their capacity of acting upon motives pointing directly to the general good or making them aware of the defects which render them and others incapable of doing so in the principles of political economy these opinions were promulgated less clearly and fully in the first edition rather more so in the second and quite unequivocally in the third the difference arose partly from the change of times the first edition having been written and sent to press before the french revolution of eighteen forty eight after which the public mind became more open to the reception of novelties in opinion and doctrines appeared moderate which would have been thought very startling a short time before in the first edition the difficulties of socialism were stated so strongly that the tone was on the whole that of opposition to it in the year or two which followed much time was given to the study of the best socialistic writers on the continent and to mediation and discussion on the whole range of topics involved in the controversy and the result was that most of what had been written on the subject in the first edition was cancelled and replaced by arguments and reflections which represent a more advanced opinion the political economy was far more rapidly executed than the logic or indeed than anything of importance which i had previously written it was commenced in the autumn of eighteen forty five and was ready for the press before the end of eighteen forty seven in this period of little more than two years there was an interval of six months during which the work was laid aside while i was writing articles in the morning chronicle which unexpectedly entered warmly into my purpose urging the foundation of peasant properties on the wastelands of ireland this was during the period of famine the winter of eighteen forty six to forty seven 
when the stern necessities of the time seemed to afford a chance of gaining attention for what appeared to me the only mode of combining relief to immediate destitution with permanent improvement of the social and economical condition of the irish people but the idea was new and strange there was no english precedent for such a proceeding and the profound ignorance of english politicians and the english public concerning all social phenomena not generally met with in england however common elsewhere made my endeavours an entire failure instead of a great operation on the wastelands and the conversion of cotiers into proprietors parliament passed a poor law for maintaining them as paupers and if the nation has not since found itself in inextricable difficulties from the joint operation of the old evils and the quack remedy it is indebted for its deliverance to that most unexpected and surprising fact the depopulation of ireland commenced by famine and continued by immigration end of section sixteen recording by tony richardson section seventeen autobiography of john stuart mill this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 2 View of the Remainder of My Life. The rapid success of the political economy showed that the public wanted and were prepared for such a book. Published early in 1848, an edition of a thousand copies was sold in less than a year. Another similar edition was published in the spring of 1849, and a third of 1,250 copies early in 1852. It was, from the first, continually cited and referred to as an authority because it was not a book merely of abstract science, but also of application, and treated political economy not as a thing by itself, but as a fragment of the greater whole, a branch of social philosophy so interlinked with all the other branches that its conclusions, even in its own peculiar province, are only true conditionally, subject to interference and counteraction from causes not directly within its scope while to the character of a practical guide it has no pretension apart from other classes of considerations political economy in truth has never pretended to give advice to mankind with no lights but its own though people who knew nothing but political economy and therefore knew that ill have taken upon themselves to advise and could only do so by such lights as they had but the numerous sentimental enemies of political economy 
and its still more numerous interested enemies in sentimental guise have been very successful in gaining belief for this among other unmerited imputations against it and the principles having in spite of the freedom of many of its opinions become for the present the most popular treatise on the subject has helped to disarm the enemies of so important a study the amount of its worth as an exposition of the science and the value of the different applications which it suggests others of course must judge for a considerable time after this i published no work of magnitude though i still occasionally wrote in periodicals and my correspondence much of it with persons quite unknown to me on subjects of public interest swelled to a considerable bulk during these years i wrote or commenced various essays for eventual publication on some of the fundamental questions of human and social life with regard to several of which i have already much exceeded the severity of the horatian precept i continued to watch with keen interest the progress of public events but it was not on the whole very encouraging to me the european reaction after eighteen forty eight and the success of an unprincipled usurper in december eighteen fifty one put an end as it seemed to all present hope for freedom or social improvement in france and the continent in england i had seen and continued to see many of the opinions of my youth obtain general recognition and many of the reforms in institutions for which i had through life contended either effected or in course of being so but these changes had been attended with much less benefit to human well-being than i should formerly have anticipated because they had produced very little improvement in that which all real amelioration in the lot of mankind depends on their intellectual and moral state and it might even be questioned if the various causes of deterioration which had been at work in the meanwhile had not more than counterbalanced the tendencies to improvement i had learnt from experience that many false opinions may be exchanged for true ones without in the least altering the habits of mind of which false opinions are the result the english public for example are quite as raw and undiscerning on subjects of political economy since the nation has been converted to free trade as they were before and are still further from having acquired better habits of thought and feeling or being in any way better fortified against error on subjects of a more elevated character for though they have thrown off certain errors the general discipline of their minds 
intellectually and morally is not altered i am now convinced that no great improvements in the lot of mankind are possible until a great change takes place in the fundamental constitution of their modes of thought the old opinions in religion morals and politics are so much discredited in the more intellectual minds as to have lost the greater part of their efficacy for good while they have still life enough in them to be a powerful obstacle to the growing up of any better opinions on those subjects when the philosophic minds of the world can no longer believe its religion or can only believe it with modifications amounting to an essential change of its character a transitional period commences of weak convictions paralyzed intellects and growing laxity of principle which cannot terminate until a renovation has been effected in the basis of their belief leading to the evolution of some faith whether religious or merely human which they can really believe and when things are in this state all thinking or writing which does not tend to promote such a renovation is of very little value beyond the moment since there was little in the apparent condition of the public mind indicative of any tendency in this direction my view of the immediate prospects of human improvement was not sanguine more recently a spirit of free speculation has sprung up giving a more encouraging prospect to the gradual mental emancipation of england and concurring with the renewal under better auspices of the movement for political freedom in the rest of europe has given to the present condition of human affairs a more hopeful aspect between the time of which i have now spoken and the present took place the most important events in my private life the first of these was my marriage in april eighteen fifty one to the lady whose incomparable worth has made her friendship the greatest source to me both of happiness and of improvement during many years in which we never expected to be in any closer relation to one another ardently as i should have aspired to this complete union of our lives at any time in the course of my existence at which it had been practicable i as much as my wife would far rather have foregone that privilege for ever than have owed it to the premature death of one for whom i had the sincerest respect and she the strongest affection that event however having taken place in july eighteen forty nine it was granted to me to derive from that evil my own greatest good by adding to the partnership of thought feeling and writing which had long existed a partnership of our entire existence 
for seven and a half years that blessing was mine for seven and a half only i can say nothing which could describe even in the faintest manner what that loss was and is but because i know that she would have wished it i endeavor to make the best of what life i have left and to work on for her purposes with such diminished strength as can be derived from thoughts of her and communion with her memory when two persons have their thoughts and speculations completely in common with all subjects of intellectual or moral interest are discussed between them in daily life and probed to much greater depth than are usually or conveniently sounded in writings intended for general readers when they set out from the same principles and arrive at their conclusions by processes pursued jointly it is of little consequence in respect to the question of originality which of them holds the pen the one who contributes least to the composition may contribute more to the thought the writings which result are the joint production of both and it must often be impossible to disentangle their respective parts and affirm that this belongs to one and that to the other in this wide sense not only during the years of our married life but during many of the years of confidential friendship which preceded all my published writings were as much her work as mine her share in them constantly increasing as years advanced but in certain cases what belongs to her can be distinguished and specially identified over and above the general influence which her mind had over mine the most valuable ideas and features in these joint productions those which have been most fruitful of important results and have contributed most to the success and reputation of the works themselves originated with her emanations from her mind my part in them being no greater than in any of the thoughts which i found in previous writers and made my own only by incorporating them with my own system of thought during the greater part of my literary life i have performed the office in relation to her which from a rather early period i had considered as the most useful part that i was qualified to take in the domain of thought that of an interpreter of original thinkers and mediator between them and the public for i had always a humble opinion of my own powers as an original thinker except in abstract science logic metaphysics and the theoretic principles of political economy and politics but thought myself much superior to most of my contemporaries in willingness and ability to learn from everybody 
as i found hardly any one who made such a point of examining what was said in defence of all opinions however new or however old even if they were errors there might be a substratum of truth underneath them and that in any case the discovery of what it was that made them plausible would be a benefit to truth i had in consequence marked this out as a sphere of usefulness in which i was under a special obligation to make myself active the more so as the acquaintance i had formed with the ideas of the coleridgians of the german thinkers and of carlyle all of them fiercely opposed to the mode of thought in which i had been brought up had convinced me that along with much error they possessed much truth which was veiled from minds otherwise capable of receiving it by the transcendental and mystical phraseology in which they were accustomed to shut it up and from which they neither cared nor knew how to disengage it and i did not despair of separating the truth from the error and exposing it in terms which would be intelligible and not repulsive to those on my own side in philosophy thus prepared it will easily be believed that when i came into close intellectual communion with a person of the most eminent faculties whose genius as it grew and unfolded itself in thought continually struck out truths far in advance of me but in which i could not as i had done in those others detect any mixture of error the greatest part of my mental growth consisted in the assimilation of those truths and the most valuable part of my intellectual work was in building the bridges and clearing the paths which connected them with my general system of thought the first of my books in which her share was conspicuous was the principles of political economy the system of logic owed little to her except in the minuter matters of composition in which respect my writings both great and small have largely benefited by her accurate and clear-sighted criticism the chapter of the political economy which has had a greater influence on opinion than all the rest that on the probable future of the laboring classes is entirely due to her in that first draft of the book that chapter did not exist she pointed out the need of such a chapter and the extreme imperfection of the book without it she was the cause of my writing it and the more general part of the chapter the statement and discussion of the two opposite theories respecting the proper condition of the laboring classes was wholly an exposition of her thoughts often in words taken from her own lips the purely scientific part of the political economy i did not learn from her but it was chiefly her influence that gave to the book that general tone by which it is distinguished from all previous expositions 
of political economy that had any pretension to being scientific and which has made it so useful in conciliating minds which those previous expositions had repelled this tone consisted chiefly in making the proper distinction between the laws of the production of wealth which are laws of nature dependent on the properties of objects and the modes of its distribution which subject to certain conditions depend on the human will the common run of political economists confused these together under the designation of economic laws which they deem incapable of being defeated or modified by human effort ascribing the same necessity to things dependent on the unchangeable conditions of our earthly existence and to those which being but the necessary consequences of particular social arrangements are merely co-extensive with these given certain institutions and customs wages profits and rents will be determined by certain causes but this class of political economists drop the indispensable presupposition and argue that these causes must by an inherent necessity against which no human means can avail determine the shares which fall in the division of the produce to laborers capitalists and landlords the principle of political economy yielded to none of its predecessors in aiming at the scientific appreciation of the action of these causes under the condition which they presuppose but it set the example of not treating those conditions as final the economic generalizations which depend not on the necessities of nature but on those combined with the existing arrangements of society it deals with only as provisional and as liable to be much altered by the progress of social improvement i had indeed partially learnt this view of things from the thoughts awakened in me by the speculations of st simonians but it was made a living principle pervading and animating the book by my wife's promptings this example illustrates well the general character of what she contributed to my writings what was abstract and purely scientific was generally mine the properly human element came from her in all that concerned the application of philosophy to the exigencies of human society and progress i was her pupil alike in boldness of speculation and cautiousness of practical judgment for on the one hand she was much more courageous and far-sighted than without her i should have been in anticipation of an order of things to come in which many of the limited generalizations now so often confounded with universal principles will cease to be applicable those parts of my writings and especially of the political economy 
which contemplate possibilities in the future such as when affirmed by socialists have in general been fiercely denied by political economists would but for her either have been absent or the suggestions would have been made much more timidly and in a more qualified form but while she thus rendered me bolder in speculation on human affairs her practical turn of mind and her almost unerring estimate of practical obstacles repressed in me all tendencies that were really visionary her mind invested all ideas in a concrete shape and formed to itself a conception of how they would actually work and her knowledge of the existing feelings and conduct of mankind was so seldom at fault that the weak point in any unworkable suggestion seldom escapes her during the two years which immediately preceded the cessation of my official life my wife and i were working together at the liberty i had first planned and written it as a short essay in eighteen fifty four it was in mounting the steps of the capitol in january eighteen fifty five that the thought first arose of converting it into a volume none of my writings have been either so carefully composed or so sedulously corrected as this after it had been written as usual twice over we kept it by us bringing it out from time to time and going through it de novo reading weighing criticizing every sentence its final revision was to have been a work of the winter of eighteen fifty eight and fifty nine the first year after my retirement which we had arranged to pass in the south of europe that hope and every other were frustrated by the most unexpected and bitter calamity of her death at avignon on our way to montpelier from a sudden attack of pulmonary congestion since then i have sought for such alleviations as my state admitted of by the mode of life which most enabled me to feel her still near me i bought a cottage as close as possible to the place where she's buried and there her daughter my fellow-sufferer and now my chief comfort and i live constantly during a great portion of the year my objects in life are solely those which were hers my pursuits and occupations those in which she shared or sympathized and which are indissolubly associated with her her memory is to me a religion and her approbation the standard by which summing up as it does all worthiness I endeavored to regulate my life after my irreparable loss one of my earliest cares was to print and publish the treatise so much of which was the work of her whom i had lost and consecrated to her memory i have made no alteration or addition to it nor shall i ever 
though it wants the last touch of her hand no substitute for that touch shall ever be attempted by mine the liberty was more directly and literally our joint production than anything else which bears my name for there was not a sentence of it that was not several times gone through by us together turned over in many ways and carefully weeded out of any faults either in thought or expression that we detected in it it is in consequence to this that although it never underwent her final revision it far surpasses as a mere specimen of composition anything which has proceeded from me either before or since with regard to the thoughts it is difficult to identify any particular part or element as being more hers than all the rest the whole mode of thinking of which the book was the expression was emphatically hers but i also was thoroughly imbued with it that the same thoughts naturally occurred to us both that i was thus penetrated with it however i owe in a great degree to her there was a moment in my mental progress when i might easily have fallen into a tendency towards over-government both social and political as there was also a moment when by reaction from a contrary excess i might have become a less thorough radical and democrat than i am in both these points as in many others she benefited me by keeping me right where i was right as by leading me to new truths and ridding me of errors my great readiness and eagerness to learn from everybody and to make room in my opinions for every new acquisition by adjusting the old and the new to one another might but for her steadying influence have seduced me into modifying my early opinions too much she was in nothing more valuable to my mental development than by her just measure of the relative importance of different considerations which often protected me from allowing to truths i had only recently learnt to see a more important place in my thoughts than was properly their due the liberty is likely to survive longer than anything else that i have written with the possible exception of the logic because the conjunction of her mind with mine has rendered it a kind of philosophical textbook of a single truth which the changes progressively take place in modern society tend to bring out into ever stronger belief the importance to man and society of a large variety and types of character and of giving full freedom to human nature to expand itself in innumerable and conflicting directions nothing can better show how deep are the foundations of this truth than the great impression made by the exposition of it at a time which to superficial observation did not seem to stand much in need of such a lesson.
the fears we expressed lest the inevitable growth of social equality and of the government of public opinion should impose on mankind an oppressive yoke of uniformity in opinion and practice might easily have appeared chimerical to those who look more at present facts than at tendencies for the gradual revolution that is taking place in society and institutions has thus far been decidedly favorable to the development of new opinions and has procured for them a much more unprejudiced hearing than they previously met with but this is a feature belonging to periods of transition when old notions and feelings have been unsettled and no new doctrines have yet succeeded to their ascendancy at such times people of any mental activity having given up their old beliefs and not feeling quite sure that those they still retain can stand unmodified listen eagerly to new opinions but this state of things is necessarily transitory some particular body of doctrine in time rallies the majority round it organizes social institutions and modes of action conformally to itself education impresses this new creed upon the new generations without the mental processes that have led to it and by degrees it acquires the very same power of compression so long exercised by the creeds of which it has taken the place whether this noxious power will be exercised depends on whether mankind have by that time become aware that it cannot be exercised without stunting and dwarfing human nature it is then that the teachings of the liberty will have their greatest value and it is to be feared that they will retain that value a long time end of section 17 recording by tony richardson section 18 Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 3 General View of the Remainder of My Life. As regards originality, it has, of course, no other than that which every thoughtful mind gives to its own mode of conceiving and expressing truths which are common property. The leading thought of the book is one which, though in many ages confined to insulated thinkers, mankind have probably at no time since the beginning of civilization been entirely without. To speak only of the last few generations, it is distinctly contained in the vein of important thought 
respecting education and culture spread through the european mind by the labors and genius of pestalozzi the unqualified championship of it by wilhelm von humboldt is referred to in the book but he by no means stood alone in his own country during the early part of the present century the doctrine of the rights of individuality and the claim of the moral nature to develop itself in its own way was pushed by a whole school of german authors even to exaggeration and the writing of goethe the most celebrated of all german authors though not belonging to that or to any other school are penetrated throughout by views of moral and of conduct in life often in my opinion not defensible but which are incessantly seeking whatever defense they admit of in the theory of the right and duty of self-development in our own country before the book on liberty was written the doctrine of individuality had been enthusiastically asserted in a style of vigorous declamation sometimes reminding one of fitch by mr william mccall in a series of writings of which the most elaborate is entitled elements of individualism and a remarkable american mr warren had framed a system of society on the foundation of the sovereignty of the individual had obtained a number of followers and had actually commenced the formation of a village community whether it now exists or not i know not which though bearing a superficial resemblance to some of the projects of socialists is diametrically opposite to them in principle since it recognizes no authority whatever in society over the individual except to enforce equal freedom of development for all individualities as the book which bears my name claimed no originality for any of its doctrines it was not intended to write their history the only author who had preceded me in their assertion of whom i thought it appropriate to say anything was humboldt who furnished the motto to the work although in one passage i borrowed from the warrenites their phrase the sovereignty of the individual it is hardly necessary here to remark that there are abundant differences in detail between the conception of the doctrine by any of the predecessors i have mentioned and that set forth in the book the political circumstances of the time induced me shortly after to complete and publish a pamphlet thoughts on parliamentary reform part of which had been written some years previously on the occasion of one of the abortive reform bills and had at the time been approved and revised by her its principal features were hostility to the ballot a change of opinion in both of us in which she rather preceded me and a claim of representation for minorities not however at that time going beyond the cumulative vote proposed by mr garth marshall in finishing the pamphlet for publication 
with a view to the discussions on the reform bill of lord derby's and mr disraeli's government in eighteen fifty nine i added a third feature a plurality of votes to be given not to property but to prove superiority of education this recommended itself to me as a means of reconciling the irresistible claim of every man or woman to be consulted and to be allowed a voice in the regulation of affairs which vitally concerned them with the superiority of weight justly due to opinions grounded on superiority of knowledge the suggestion however was one which i had never discussed with my almost infallible counsellor and i have no evidence that she would have concurred in it as far as i have been able to observe it has found favour with nobody all who desire any sort of inequality in the electoral vote desiring it in favour of property and not of intelligence or knowledge if it ever overcomes the strong feeling which exists against it this will only be after the establishment of a systematic national education by which the various grades of political valuable acquirement may be accurately defined and authenticated without this it will always remain liable to strong possibly conclusive objections and with this it would perhaps not be needed it was soon after the publication of thoughts on parliamentary reform that i became acquainted with mr hale's admirable system of personal representation which in its present shape was then for the first time published i saw in this great practical and philosophical idea the greatest improvement of which the system of representative government is susceptible an improvement which in the most felicitous manner exactly meets and cures the grand and what before seemed the inherent defect in the representative system that of giving to a numerical majority all power instead of only a power proportional to its numbers and enabling the strongest party to exclude all weaker parties from making their opinions heard in the assembly of the nation except through such opportunity as may be given to them by the accidentally unequal distribution of opinions in different localities to these great evils nothing more than very imperfect palliations had seemed possible but mr hare's system affords a radical cure this great discovery for it is no less in the political art inspired me as i believe it has inspired all thoughtful persons who have adopted it with new and more sanguine hopes respecting the prospects of human society by freezing the form of political institutions towards which the whole civilized world is manifestly and irresistibly tending from the chief part of what seemed to qualify or render doubtful its ultimate benefits minorities so long as they remain minorities are and ought to be outvoted 
but under arrangements which enable any assemblage of voters amounting to a certain number to place in the legislature a representative of its own choice minorities cannot be suppressed independent opinions will force their way into the council of the nation and make themselves heard there a thing which often cannot happen in the existing forms of representative democracy and the legislature instead of being weeded of individual peculiarities and entirely made up of men who simply represent the creed of great political or religious parties will comprise a large portion of the most eminent individual minds in the country placed there without reference to party by votes who appreciate their individual eminence i can understand that persons otherwise intelligent should for want of sufficient examination be repelled from mr hare's plan by what they think the complex nature of its machinery but anyone who does not feel the want which the scheme is intended to supply anyone who throws it over as a mere theoretical subtlety or crotchet tending to no valuable purpose and unworthy of the attention of practical men may be pronounced an incompetent statesman unequal to the politics of the future i mean unless he is a minister or aspires to become one for we are quite accustomed to a minister continuing to profess unqualified hostility to an improvement almost to the very day when his conscience or his interest induces him to take it up as a public measure and carry it had i met with mr hare's system before the publication of my pamphlet i should have given an account of it there not having done so i wrote an article in fraser's magazine reprinted in my miscellaneous writings principally for that purpose though i included in it along with mr hare's book a review of two other productions on the question of the day one of them a pamphlet by my early friend mr john austin who had in his old age become an enemy of all further parliamentary reform the other an able and vigorous though partially erroneous work by mr lorimer in the course of the same summer i fulfilled a duty particularly incumbent upon me that of helping by an article in the edinburgh review to make known mr bain's profound treatise on the mind just then completed by the publication of its second volume and i carried through the press a selection of my minor writings forming the first two volumes of dissertations and discussions the selection had been made during my wife's lifetime but the revision in concert with her with a view to republication had been barely commenced and when i had no longer the guidance of her judgment i despaired of pursuing it further and republished the pages as they were with the exception of striking out 
such passages as were no longer in accordance with my opinions. My literary work of the year was terminated with an essay in Fraser's magazine, afterwards republished in the third volume of Dissertations and Discussions, entitled A Few Words on Non-Intervention. I was prompted to write this paper by a desire, while vindicating England from the imputations commonly brought against her on the continent, of a particular selfishness in matters of foreign policy to warn Englishmen of the color given to this imputation by the low tone in which English statesmen are accustomed to speak of English policy as concerned only with English interests, and by the conduct of Lord Palmerston at that particular time in opposing the Suez Canal. And I took the opportunity of expressing ideas which had long been in my mind, some of them generated by my Indian experience, and others by the international questions which then greatly occupied the European public, respecting the true principles of international morality and the legitimate modifications made in it by difference of times and circumstances, a subject I had already to some extent discussed in the vindication of the French provisional government of 1848 against the attacks of Lord Brahman and others, which I published at the time in the Westminster Review, and which is reprinted in the dissertations. I had now settled, as I believed, for the remainder of my existence into a purely literary life. If that can be called literary, which continued to be occupied in a preeminent degree with politics, and not merely with theoretical, but practical politics, although a great part of the year was spent at a distance of many hundreds of miles from the chief seat of the politics of my own country, to which, and primarily for which, I wrote. But, in truth, the modern facilities of communication have not only removed all the disadvantages to a political writer in tolerably easy circumstances, of distance from the scene of political action, but have converted them into advantages. The immediate and regular receipt of newspapers and periodicals keep him au courant of even the most temporary politics, and gives him a much more correct view of the state and progress of opinion than he could acquire by personal contact with individuals. For everyone's social intercourse is more or less limited to particular sets or classes, whose impressions and no others reach him through that channel. And experience has taught me that those who give their time to the absorbing claims of what is called society, not having leisure to keep up a large acquaintance with the organs of opinion, remain much more ignorant of the general state either of the public mind or of the active and instructed part of it than a recluse 
who reads the newspapers need be there are no doubt disadvantages in too long a separation from one's country in not occasionally renewing one's impressions of the light in which men and things appear when seen from a position in the midst of them but the deliberate judgment formed at a distance and undisturbed by inequalities of perspective is the most to be depended on even for application to practice alternating between the two positions i combine the advantages of both and uh, though the inspired of my best thoughts was no longer with me i was not alone she had left a daughter my stepdaughter miss helen taylor the inheritor of much of her wisdom and of all her nobleness of character whose ever-growing and ripening talents from that day to this have been devoted to the same great purposes and have already made her name better and more widely known than was that of her mother though far less so i predict that if she lives it is destined to become of the value of her direct cooperation with me something will be said hereafter of what i owe in the way of instruction to her great powers of original thought and soundness of practical judgment it would be a vain attempt to give an adequate idea surely no one ever before was so fortunate as after such a loss as mine to draw another prize in the lottery of life another companion stimulator adviser and instructor of the rarest quality whoever either now or hereafter may think of me and the work i have done must never forget that it is the product not of one intellect and conscience but of three the least considerable of whom and above all the least original is the one whose name is attached to it the work of the years eighteen sixty and eighteen sixty one consisted chiefly of two treatises only one of which was intended for immediate publication this was the considerations on representative government a connected exposition of what by the thoughts of many years I had come to regard as the best form of a popular constitution along with as much of the general theory of government as is necessary to support this particular portion of its practice the volume contained many matured views of the principal questions which occupy the present age within the province of purely organic institutions and raises by anticipation some other questions to which growing necessities will sooner or later compel the attention both of theoretical and of practical politicians the chief of these last is the distinction between the function of making laws for which a numerous popular assembly is radically unfit and that of getting good laws made which is the proper duty 
and cannot be satisfactorily fulfilled by any other authority and the consequent need of a legislative commission as a permanent part of the constitution of a free country consisting of a small number of highly trained political minds on whom when parliament has determined that a law shall be made the task of making it should be devolved parliament retaining the power of passing or rejecting the bill when drawn up but not of altering it otherwise than by sending proposed amendments to be dealt with by the commission the question here raised respecting the most important of all public functions that of legislation is a particular case of the great problem of modern political organization stated i believe for the first time in its full extent by bentham though in my opinion not always satisfactorily resolved by him the combination of complete popular control over public affairs with the greatest attainable perfection of skilled agency the other treatise written at this time is the one which was published some years later under the title of the subjection of women it was written at my daughter's suggestion that there might in any event be in existence a written exposition of my opinions on that great question as full and conclusive as i could make it the intention was to keep this among other unpublished papers improving it from time to time if i was able and to publish it at the time when it should seem likely to be most useful as ultimately published it was enriched with some important ideas of my daughter's and passages of her writing but in what was of my own composition all that is most striking and profound belongs to my wife coming from the fund of thought which had been made common to us both by our innumerable conversations and discussions on a topic which filled so large a place in our minds. Soon after this time I took from their repository a portion of unpublished papers which I had written during the last years of our married life and shaped them, with some additional matter, into the little work entitled utilitarianism which was first published in three parts in successive numbers of fraser's magazine and afterwards reprinted in a volume before this however the state of public affairs had become extremely critical by the commencement of the american civil war my strongest feelings were engaged in the struggle which i felt from the beginning was destined to be a turning point for good or evil of the course of human affairs for an indefinite duration having been a deeply interested observer of the slavery quarrel in america during the many years that preceded the open breach i knew that it was in all its stages an aggressive enterprise of the slave owners to extend the territory of slavery 
under the combined influences of pecuniary interest domineering temper and fanaticism of a class for its class privileges influences so fully and powerfully depicted in the admirable work of my friend professor carnes the slave power their success if they succeeded would be a victory of the powers of evil which would give courage to the enemies of progress and doubt the spirits of its friends all over the civilized world while it would create a formidable military power grounded on the worst and most antisocial form of the tyranny of men over men and by destroying for a long time the prestige of the great democratic republic would give to all the privileged classes of europe a false confidence probably only to be extinguished in blood on the other hand if the spirit of the north was sufficiently roused to carry the war to a successful termination and if that termination did not come too soon and too easily i foresaw from the laws of human nature and the experience of revolutions that when it did come it would in all probability be thorough that the bulk of the northern population whose conscience had as yet been awakened only to the point of resisting the further extension of slavery but whose fidelity to the constitution of the united states made them disprove of any attempt by the federal government to interfere with slavery in the states where it already existed would acquire feelings of another kind when the constitution had been shaken off by armed rebellion would determine to have done forever with the accursed thing and would join their banner with that of the noble body of abolitionists of whom garrison was the courageous and single-minded apostle wendell phillips the eloquent orator and john brown the voluntary martyr then too the whole mind of the united states would be let loose from its bonds no longer corrupted by the supposed necessity of apologizing to foreigners for the most flagrant of all possible violations of the free principles of their constitution while the tendency of a fixed state of society to stereotype a set of national opinions would be at least temporarily checked and the national mind would become more open to the recognition of whatever was bad in either the institutions or the customs of the people these hopes so far as related to slavery have been completely and in other respects are in course of being progressively realized foreseeing from the first this double set of consequences from the success or failure of the rebellion it may be imagined with what feelings i contemplated the rush of nearly the whole upper and middle classes of my own country even those who passed for liberals into a furious pro-southern partnership 
the working classes and some of the literary and scientific men being almost sole exceptions to the general frenzy i never before felt so keenly how little permanent improvement had reached the minds of our influential classes and of what small value were the liberal opinions they had got into the habit of professing none of the continental liberals committed the same frightful mistake but the generation which had extorted negro emancipation from our west india planters had passed away another had succeeded which had not learnt by many years of discussion and exposure to feel stronger the enormities of slavery and the inattention habitual with englishmen to whatever is going on in the world outside their own island made them profoundly ignorant of all the antecedents of the struggle insomuch that it was not generally believed in england for the first year or two of the war that the quarrel was one of slavery there were men of high principle and unquestionable liberality of opinion who thought it a dispute about tariffs or assimilated it to the cases in which they were accustomed to sympathize of a people struggling for independence. End of section 18. Recording by Tony Richardson. Section 19. Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 4. General View of the Remainder of My Life. It was my obvious duty to be one of the small minority who protested against this perverted state of public opinion. I was not the first to protest. It ought to be remembered to the honor of Mr. Hughes and of Mr. Ludlow that they, by writings published at the very beginning of the struggle, began the protestation. Mr. Bright followed in one of the most powerful of his speeches, followed by others not less striking. I was on the point of adding my words to theirs when there occurred, towards the end of 1861, the seizure of the southern envoys on board a British vessel by an officer of the United States. Even English forgetfulness has not yet had time to lose all remembrance of the explosion of feeling in England which then burst forth, the expectation prevailing for some weeks of war with the United States, and the warlike preparations actually commenced on this side. While this state of things lasted, there was no chance of a hearing for anything favorable to the American cause, and, moreover, 
I agreed with those who thought the act unjustifiable, and such as to require that England should demand its disavowal. When the disavowal came, and the alarm of war was over, I wrote in January 1862 the paper in Fraser's magazine entitled The Contest in America, and I shall always feel grateful to my daughter that her urgency prevailed on me to write it when I did, for we were then on the point of setting out for a journey of some months in Greece and Turkey, and but for her, I should have deferred writing till our return. Written and published when it was, this paper helped to encourage those liberals who had felt overborne by the tide of liberal opinion, and to form in favor of the good cause a nucleus of opinion which increased gradually, and after the success of the North began to seem probable, rapidly. When we returned from our journey, I wrote a second article, a preview of Professor Carnes's book, published in the Westminster Review. England is paying the penalty, in many uncomfortable ways, of the durable resentment which her ruling classes have stirred up in the United States by their ostentatious wishes for the ruin of America as a nation. They have reason to be thankful that a few, if only a few, known writers and speakers, standing firmly by the Americans in the time of their greatest difficulty, expected a partial diversion of these bitter feelings, and made Great Britain not altogether odious to the Americans. This duty having been performed, my principal occupation for the next two years was on subjects not political. The publication of Mr. Austin's lectures on jurisprudence after his decease gave me an opportunity of paying a deserved tribute to his memory, and at the same time expressing some thoughts on a subject on which, in my old days of Benthamism, I had bestowed much study. But the chief product of those years was the examination of Sir William Hamilton's philosophy. His lectures published in 1860 and 1861, I had read towards the end of the latter year with a half-formed intention of giving an account of them in a review, but I soon found that this would be idle and that justice could not be done to the subject in less than a volume. I had then to consider whether it would be advisable that I myself should attempt such a performance. On consideration, there seemed to be strong reasons for doing so. I was greatly disappointed with the lectures. I read them, certainly, with no prejudice against Sir William Hamilton. I had up to that time deferred the study of his notes to read on account of their unfinished state, but I had not neglected his discussions in philosophy. And though I knew that his general mode of treating the facts of mental philosophy differed from that of which I most approved, yet his vigorous polemic against the latter transcendentalists and his strenuous assertion of some important principles, especially the relativity of human knowledge, 
gave me many points of sympathy with his opinions and made me think that genuine psychology had considerably more to gain than to lose by his authority and reputation his lectures and the dissertation on reed dispelled this illusion even the discussions read by the light which these throw on them lost much of their value i found that the points of apparent agreement between his opinions and mine were more verbal than real that the important philosophical principles which i had thought he recognized were so explained away by him as to mean little or nothing or were continually lost sight of and doctrines entirely inconsistent with them were taught in nearly every part of his philosophical writings my estimation of him was therefore so far altered that instead of regarding him as occupying a kind of intermediate position between the two rival philosophies holding some of the principles of both and supplying to both powerful weapons of attack and defense i now looked upon him as one of the pillars and in this country from his high philosophical reputation the chief pillar of that one of the two which seemed to me to be erroneous now the difference between these two schools of philosophy that of intuition and that of experience and association is not a mere matter of abstract speculation it is full of practical consequences and lies at the foundation of all the greatest differences of practical opinion in an age of progress the practical reformer has continually to demand that changes be made in things which are supported by powerful and widely spread feelings or to question the apparent necessity and indefeasibleness of established facts and it is often an indispensable part of his argument to show how those powerful feelings had their origin and how those facts came to seem necessary and indefeasible there is therefore a natural hostility between him and a philosophy which discourages the explanation of feelings and moral facts by circumstances and association and prefers to treat them as ultimate elements of human nature a philosophy which is addicted to holding up favorite doctrines as intuitive truths and deems intuition to be the voice of nature and of god speaking with an authority higher than that of our reason in particular i have long felt that the prevailing tendency to regard all the marked distinctions of human character as innate and in the main indelible and to ignore the irresistible proofs that by far the greatest part of those differences whether between individuals races or sexes are such as not only might but naturally would be produced by differences in circumstances is one of the chief hindrances of the rational treatment of great social questions and one of the great stumbling blocks to human improvement this tendency has its source in the intuitional metaphysics which characterized the reaction of the nineteenth century against the eighteenth 
and it is a tendency so agreeable to human indolence as well as to conservative interests generally that unless attacked at the very root it is sure to be carried to even a greater length than is really justified by the more moderate forms of the intuitional philosophy that philosophy not always in its moderate forms had ruled the thought of europe for the greater part of a century my father's analysis of the mind my own logic and professor bain's great treatise had attempted to reintroduce a better mode of philosophizing latterly with quite as much success as could be expected but i had for some time felt that the mere contrast of the two philosophies was not enough, that there ought to be a hand-to-hand -hand fight between them, that controversial as well as expository writings were needed, and that the time was come when such controversy would be useful. Considering, then, the writings and fame of Sir W. Hamilton as the great fortress of the intuitional philosophy in this country a fortress the more formidable from the imposing character and the in many respects great personal merits and mental endowments of the man i thought it might be a real service to philosophy to attempt a thorough examination of all his most important doctrines and an estimate of his general claims to eminence as a philosopher and i was confirmed in this resolution by observing that in the writings of at least one and him one of the ablest of sir w hamilton's followers his peculiar doctrines were made the justification of a view of religion which i hold to be profoundly immoral that it is our duty to bow down and worship before a being whose moral attributes are affirmed to be unknowable by us and to be perhaps extremely different from those which when we are speaking of our fellow creatures we call by the same names as i advanced in my task the damage to sir w hamilton's reputation became greater than i at first expected through the almost incredible multitude of inconsistencies which showed themselves on comparing different passages with one another it was my business however to show things exactly as they were and i did not flinch from it i endeavoured always to treat the philosopher whom i criticised with the most scrupulous fairness and i knew that he had abundance of disciples and admirers to correct me if i ever unintentionally did him injustice many of them accordingly have answered me more or less elaborately and they have pointed out oversights and misunderstandings though few in number and mostly very unimportant in substance such of those as had to my knowledge been pointed out before the publication of the latest edition at present the third have been corrected there and the remainder of the criticisms have been as far as seemed necessary replied to on the whole the book has done its work 
it has shown the weak side of sir william hamilton and has reduced his too great philosophical reputation within more moderate bounds and by some of its discussions as well as by two expository chapters on the notions of matter and of mind it has perhaps thrown additional light on some of the disputed questions in the domain of psychology and metaphysics after the completion of the book on hamilton i applied myself to a task which a variety of reasons seemed to render specially incumbent upon me that of giving an account and forming an estimate of the doctrines of august comte i had contributed more than any one else to make his speculations known in england and in consequence chiefly of what i had said of him in my logic he had readers and admirers among thoughtful men on this side of the channel at a time when his name had not yet in france emerged from obscurity so unknown and unappreciated was he at the time when my logic was written and published that to criticize his weak points might well appear superfluous while it was a duty to give as much publicity as one could to the important contributions he had made to philosophic thought at the time however at which i have now arrived this state of affairs had entirely changed his name at least was known almost universally and the general character of his doctrines very widely he had taken his place in the estimation both of friends and opponents as one of the conspicuous figures in the thought of the age the better parts of his speculations had made great progress in working their way into those minds which by their previous culture and tendencies were fitted to receive them under cover of those better parts those of a worse character greatly developed and added to in his later writings had also made some way having obtained active and enthusiastic adherents some of them of no inconsiderable personal merit in england france and other countries these causes not only made it desirable that some one should undertake the task of sifting what is good from what is bad in m comte's speculations but seemed to impose on myself in particular a special obligation to make the attempt this i accordingly did in two essays published in successive numbers of the westminster review and reprinted in a small volume under the title august comte and positivism the writings which i have now mentioned together with a small number of papers in periodicals which i have not deemed worth preserving were the whole of the products of my activity as a writer during the years from eighteen fifty nine to eighteen sixty five in the early part of the last mentioned year in compliance with the wish frequently expressed to me by working men i published cheap people's editions of those of my writings which seemed the most likely to find readers 
among the working classes visibly principles of political economy liberty and representative government this was a considerable sacrifice of my pecuniary interest especially as i resigned all idea of deriving profit from the cheap editions and after ascertaining from my publishers the lowest price which they thought would remunerate them on the usual terms of an equal division of profits i gave up my half share to enable the price to be fixed still lower to the credit of mrs longman they fixed unasked a certain number of years after which the copyright and stereotype plates were to revert to me and a certain number of copies after the sale of which i should receive half of any further profit this number of copies which in the case of the political economy was ten thousand has for some time been exceeded and the people's editions have begun to yield me a small but unexpected pecuniary return though very far from an equivalent for the diminution of profit from the library editions in this summary of my outward life i have now arrived at the period at which my tranquil and retired existence as a writer of books was to be exchanged for the less congenial occupation of a member of the house of commons the proposal made to me early in eighteen sixty five by some electors of westminster did not present the idea to me for the first time it was not even the first offer i had received for more than ten years previous in consequence of my opinions on the irish land question mr lucas and mr duffy in the name of the popular party in ireland offered to bring me into parliament for an irish county which they could easily have done but the incompatibility of a seat in parliament with the office i then held in the india house precluded even consideration of the proposal after i had quitted the india house several of my friends would gladly have seen me a member of parliament but there seemed no probability that the idea would ever take any practical shape i was convinced that no numerous or influential portion of any electoral body really wished to be represented by a person of my opinions and that one who possessed no local connection or popularity and who did not choose to stand as the mere organ of a party had small chance of being elected anywhere unless through the expenditure of money now it was and is my fixed conviction that a candidate ought not to incur one farthing of expense for undertaking a public duty such of the lawful expenses of an election as have no special reference to any particular candidate ought to be borne as a public charge either by the state or by the locality what has to be done by the supporters of each candidate in order to bring his claims properly before the constituency should be done by unpaid agency 
or by voluntary subscription if members of the electoral body or others are willing to subscribe money of their own for the purpose of bringing by lawful means into parliament someone who they think would be useful there no one is entitled to object but that the expense or any part of it should fall on the candidate is fundamentally wrong because it amounts in reality to buying his seat even on the most favorable supposition as to the mode in which the money is expended there is a legitimate suspicion that anyone who gives money for a leave to undertake a public trust has other than public ends to promote by it and a consideration of the greatest importance the cost of elections when borne by the candidates deprives the nation of the services as members of parliament of all who cannot or will not afford to incur a heavy expense i do not say that so long as there is scarcely a chance for an independent candidate to come into parliament without complying with this vicious practice it must always be morally wrong in him to spend money provided that no part of it is either directly or indirectly employed in corruption but to justify it he ought to be very certain that he can be of more use to his country as a member of parliament than in any other mode which is open to him and this assurance in my own case i did not feel it was by no means clear to me that i could do more to advance the public objects which had a claim on my exertions from the benches of the house of commons than from the simple position of a writer i felt therefore that i ought not to seek election to parliament much less to expend any money in procuring it but the conditions of the question were considerably altered when a body of electors sought me out and spontaneously offered to bring me forward as their candidate if it should appear on explanation that they persisted in this wish knowing my opinions and accepting the only conditions on which i could conscientiously serve it was questionable whether this was not one of those calls upon a member of the community by his fellow-citizens which he was scarcely justified in rejecting i therefore put their disposition to the proof by one of the frankest explanations ever tendered i should think to an electoral body by a candidate i wrote in reply to the offer a letter for publication saying that i had no personal wish to be a member of parliament that i thought a candidate ought neither to canvass nor to incur any expense and that i could not consent to do either i said further that if elected i could not undertake to give any of my time and labor to their local interests with respect to general politics i told them without reserve what i thought on a number of important subjects which they had asked my opinion and one of these being the suffrage i was made known to them among other things my conviction as i was bound to do since i intended if elected to act on it 
that women were entitled to representation in parliament on the same terms with men it was the first time doubtless that such a doctrine had ever been mentioned to english electors and the fact that i was elected after proposing it gave the start to the movement which has since become so vigorous in favor of women's suffrage nothing at the time appeared more unlikely than that a candidate if candidate i could be called whose professions and conduct set so completely at defiance all ordinary notions of electioneering should nevertheless be elected a well-known literary man who was also a man of society was heard to say that the almighty himself would have no chance of being elected on such a program i strictly adhered to it neither spending money nor canvassing nor did i take any personal part in the election until about a week preceding the day of nomination when i attended a few public meetings to state my principles and give to any questions which the electors might exercise their just right of putting to me for their own guidance answers as plain and unreserved as my address on one subject only my religious opinions i announced from the beginning that i would answer no questions a determination which appeared to be completely approved by those who attended the meetings my frankness on all other subjects on which i was interrogated evidently did me far more good than my answers whatever they might be did harm among the proofs i received of this one is too remarkable not to be recorded in the pamphlet thoughts on parliamentary reform i had said rather bluntly that the working classes though differing from those of some other countries and being ashamed of lying are yet generally liars <laughs> this passage some opponent got printed in a placard which was handed to me at a meeting chiefly composed of the working classes and i was asked whether i had written and published it i at once answered i did scarcely were these two words out of my mouth when vehement applause resounded through the whole meeting it was evident that the working people were so accustomed to expect equivocation and evasion from those who sought their suffrage that when they found instead of that a direct avowal of what was likely to be disagreeable to them instead of being affronted they concluded at once that this was a person whom they could trust a more striking instance never came under my notice of what i believe is the experience of those who best know the working classes that the most essential of all recommendations to their favors is that of complete straightforwardness its presence outweighs in their minds very strong objections while no amount of other qualities will make amends for its apparent absence the first working man who spoke after the incident i have mentioned it was mr odger said that the working classes had no desire not to be told of their faults they wanted friends not flatterers 
and felt under obligation to anyone who told them anything in themselves which he sincerely believed to require amendment and to this the meeting heartily responded end of section nineteen recording by tony richardson Section 20, Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 5. General View of the Remainder of My Life. Had I been defeated in the election, I should still have had no reason to regret the contact it had brought me into with large bodies of my countrymen, which not only gave me much new experience, but enabled me to scatter my political opinions rather widely, and by making me known in many quarters where I had never before been heard of, increased the number of my readers and the presumable influence of my writings these latter effects were of course produced in a still greater degree when as much as to my surprises as to that of any one i was returned to parliament by a majority of some hundreds over my conservative competitor i was a member of the house during the three sessions of the parliament which passed the reform bill during which time Parliament was necessarily my main occupation, except during the recess. I was a tolerably frequent speaker, sometimes of prepared speeches, sometimes extemporaneously. But my choice of occasions was not such as I should have made if my leading object had been parliamentary influence. When I had gained the ear of the House, which I did by a successful speech on Mr. Gladstone's reform bill, the idea I proceeded on was that when anything was likely to be well done, or sufficiently well done, by other people, there was no necessity for me to meddle with it. As I, therefore, in general, reserved myself for work which no others were likely to do, a great proportion of my appearances were on points on which the bulk of the Liberal Party, even the advanced portion of it, either were of a different opinion from mine, or were comparatively indifferent. Several of my speeches, especially one against the motion of the abolition of capital punishment, and another in favor of resuming the right of seizing enemies' goods in neutral vessels, were opposed to what then was, and probably still is, regarded as the advanced liberal opinion. My advocacy of women's suffrage and of personal representation were at the time looked upon by many as whims of my own, but the great progress since made by those opinions and especially the response made from almost all parts of the kingdom to demand for women's suffrage, fully justified the timeliness of those movements, 
and have made what was undertaken as a moral and social duty a personal success. Another duty which was particularly incumbent on me as one of the Metropolitan members was the attempt to obtain a municipal government for the metropolis, but on that subject the indifference of the House of Commons was such that I found hardly any help or support within its walls. On the subject, however, I was the organ of an active and intelligent body of persons outside with whom, and not with me, the scheme originated, and who carried on all the agitations on the subject and drew up the bills. My part was to bring in bills already prepared, and to sustain the discussion of them during the short time they were allowed to remain before the house after having taken an active part in the work of a committee presided over by mr ireton which sat through the greater part of the session of eighteen sixty six to take evidence on the subject the very different position in which the question now stands in eighteen seventy may justly be attributed to the preparation which went on during those years and which produced but little visible effect at the time. But all questions on which there are strong private interests on one side and only the public good on the other have a similar period of incubation to go through. The same idea that the use of my being in Parliament was to do work which others were not able or not willing to do made me think it my duty to come to the front in defense of advanced liberalism on occasions when the obloquy to be encountered was such as most of the advanced liberals in the House preferred not to incur. My first vote in the House was in support of an amendment in favor of Ireland, moved by an Irish member, and for which only five English and Scotch votes were given, including my own. The other four were Mr. Bright, Mr. McLaren, Mr. T.B. Potter, and Mr. Hadfield. And the second speech I delivered was on the bill to prolong the suspension of the habeas corpus in Ireland, and announcing on this occasion the English mode of governing Ireland, I did no more than the general opinion of England now admits to have been just, but the anger against Finianism was then in all its freshness. Any attack on what Finians attacked was looked upon as an apology for them and I was so unfavorably received by the House that more than one of my friends advised me and my own judgment agreed with the advice to wait before speaking again for the favorable opportunity that would be given by the first great debate on the Reform Bill. During this silence, many flattered themselves that I had turned out a failure and that they should not be troubled with me any more. Perhaps their uncomplimentary comments may, by force of reaction, have helped to make my speech on the Reform Bill the success it was. My position in the House was further improved by a speech in which I insisted on the duty 
of paying off the national debt before our coal supplies are exhausted and by an ironical reply to some of the tory leaders who had quoted against me certain passages of my writings and called me to account for others especially for one of my considerations on representative government which said that the conservative party was by the law of its composition the stupidest party they gained nothing by drawing attention to the passage which up to that time had not excited any notice but the sobriquet of the quote-unquote stupid party stuck to them for a considerable time afterwards having now no longer any apprehension of not being listened to i confined myself as i have sent thought too much to occasions on which my services seemed especially needed and abstained more than enough from speaking on the great party questions with the exception of irish questions and those which concern the working classes a single speech on mr disraeli's reform bill was nearly all that i contributed to the great decisive debates of the last two of my three sessions i have however much satisfaction in looking back to the part i took on the two classes of subjects just mentioned with regard to the working classes the chief topic of my speech on mr gladstone's reform bill was the assertion of their claims to the suffrage a little later after the resignation of lord russell's ministry and the succession of a tory government came the attempt of the working classes to hold a meeting in hyde park their exclusion by the police and the breaking down of the park railing by the crowd though mr Beales and his leaders of the working men had retired under protest before this took place a scuffle ensued in which many innocent persons were maltreated by the police and the exasperation of the working men was extreme they showed a determination to make another attempt at a meeting in the park to which many of them would probably have come armed the government made military preparations to resist the attempt and something very serious seemed impending at this crisis i really believed that i was the means of preventing much mischief i had in my place in parliament taken the side of the working men and strongly censured the conduct of the government i was invited with several other radical members to a conference with the leading members of the council of the reform league and the task fell chiefly upon myself of persuading them to give up the hyde park project and hold their meeting elsewhere it was not mr Beales and colonel dixon who needed persuading on the contrary it was evident that these gentlemen had already exerted their influence in the same direction thus far without success it was the working men who held out and so bent were they on their original scheme that i was obliged to have recourse to les grands moyens and i told them that a proceeding which would certainly produce a collision with the military 
could only be justifiable on two conditions if the position of affairs had become such that the revolution was desirable and if they thought themselves able to accomplish one to this argument after considerable discussion they at last yielded and i was able to inform mr walpole that their intention was given up i shall never forget the depth of his relief or the warmth of his expressions of gratitude after the working men had conceded so much to me i felt bound to comply with their request that i should attend and speak at their meeting at the agricultural hall the only meeting called by the reform league which i ever attended i had always declined being a member of the league on the avowed ground that i did not agree in its program of manhood suffrage and the ballot from the ballot i dissented entirely and i could not consent to hoist the flag of manhood suffrage even on the assurance that the exclusion of women was not intended to be implied since if one goes beyond what can be immediately carried and professes to take one's stand on a principle one should go the whole length of the principle i have entered thus particularly into this matter because my conduct on this occasion gave great displeasure to the tory and tory liberal press who have charged me ever since with having shown myself in the trials of public life intemperate and passionate i do not know what they expected from me but they had reason to be thankful to me if they knew from what i had in all probability preserved them and i do not believe it could have been done at that particular juncture by anyone else no other person i believe had at that moment the necessary influence for restraining the working classes except mr gladstone and mr bright neither of whom was available mr gladstone for obvious reasons mr bright because he was out of town when some time later the tory government brought in a bill to prevent public meetings in the parks i not only spoke strongly in opposition to it but formed one of a number of advanced liberals who aided by the very late period of this session succeeded in defeating the bill by what is called talking it out it has not since been renewed on irish affairs also i felt bound to take a decided part i was one of the foremost in the deputation of members of parliament who prevailed on lord derby to spare the life of the condemned finian insurgent general burke the church question was so vigorously handled by the leaders of the party in the session of eighteen sixty eight as to require no more from me than an emphatic adhesion but the land question was by no means in so advanced a position the superstitions of landlordism had up to that time been little challenged especially in parliament and the backward state of the question so far as concerned the parliamentary mind was evidenced by the extremely mild measure brought in by lord russell's government in eighteen sixty six which nevertheless could not be carried 
on that bill i delivered one of my most careful speeches in which i attempted to lay down some of the principles of the subject in a manner calculated less to stimulate friends than to conciliate and convince opponents the engrossing subject of parliamentary reform prevented either this bill or one of a similar character brought about by lord derby's government from being carried through they never got beyond the second reading meanwhile the signs of irish disaffection had become much more decided the demand of complete separation between the two countries had assumed a menacing aspect and there were few who did not feel if there was still any chance of reconciling ireland to the british connection it could only be by the adoption of much more thorough reforms in the territorial and social relations of the country than had been contemplated the time seemed to me to have come when it would be useful to speak out my whole mind and the result was my pamphlet england and ireland which was written in the winter of eighteen sixty seven and published shortly before the commencement of the session of eighteen sixty eight the leading features of the pamphlet were on the one hand an argument to show the undesirableness for ireland as well as england of separation between the countries and on the other a proposal for settling the land question by giving to the existing tenants a permanent tenure at a fixed rent to be assessed after due inquiry by the state the pamphlet was not popular except in ireland as i did not expect it to be but if no measure short of that which i proposed would do full justice to ireland or afford a prospect of conciliating the mass of the irish people the duty of proposing it was imperative while if on the other hand there was any intermediate course which had a claim to a trial i knew that to propose something which would be called extreme was the true way not to impede but to facilitate a more moderate experiment it is most improbable that a measure conceding so much of the tenantry as mr gladstone's irish land bill would have been proposed by government or could have been carried through parliament unless the british public had been led to perceive that a case might be made and perhaps a party formed for a measure considerably stronger it is the character of the british people or at least of the higher and middle classes who pass muster for the british people that to induce them to approve of any change it is necessary that they should look upon it as a middle course they think every proposal extreme and violent unless they hear of some other proposal going still farther upon which their antipathy to extreme views may discharge itself so it proved in the present instance my proposal was condemned but any scheme for irish land reform short of mine came to be thought moderate by comparison i may observe that the attacks made on my plan usually gave a very incorrect idea of its nature 
it was usually discussed as a proposal that the state should buy up the land and become the universal landlord though in fact it only offered to each individual landlord this as an alternative if he liked better to sell his estate than to retain it on the new conditions and i fully anticipated that most landlords would continue to prefer the position of landowners to that of government annuitants and would retain their existing relation to their tenants often on more indulgent terms than the full rents on which the compensation to be given them by government would have been based this and many other explanations i gave in a speech on ireland in the debate on mr maguire's resolution early in the session of eighteen sixty eight a corrected report of this speech together with my speech on mr fortescue's bill has been published not by me but by my permission in ireland another public duty of a most serious kind it was my lot to have to perform both in and out of parliament during these years a disturbance in jamaica provoked in the first instance by injustice and exaggerated by rage and panic to the premeditated rebellion had been the motive or excuse for taking hundreds of innocent lives by military violence or by sentence of what were called court-martial continuing for weeks after the brief disturbance had been put down with many added atrocities of destruction of property logging women as well as men and a general display of the brutal recklessness which usually prevails when fire and sword are let loose the perpetrators of those deeds were defended and applauded in england by the same kind of people who had so long upheld negro slavery and it seemed at first as if the british nation was about to incur the disgrace of letting pass without even a protest excesses of authority as revolting as any of those for which when perpetuated by the instruments of other governments englishmen can hardly find terms sufficient to express their abhorrence after a short time however an indignant feeling was roused and voluntary association formed itself under the name of jamaica committee to take such deliberation and action as the case might admit of and adhesions poured in from all parts of the country i was abroad at the time but i sent in my name to the committee as soon as i heard of it and took an active part in the proceedings from the time of my return there was much more at stake than only justice to the negroes imperative as was that consideration the question was whether the british dependencies and eventually perhaps great britain itself were to be under the government of law or of military license whether the lives and persons of british subjects are at the mercy of any two or three officers however raw and inexperienced or reckless and brutal whom a panic-stricken governor or other functionary may assume the right to constitute into a so-called court-martial 
This question could only be decided by an appeal to the tribunals, and such an appeal the committee determined to make. Their determination led to a change in the chairmanship of the committee. As the chairman, Mr. Charles Buxton, thought it not unjust indeed, but inexpedient, to prosecute Governor Irie and his principal subordinates in the criminal court. But a numerously attended general meeting of the association having decided this point against him, Mr. Buxton withdrew from the committee. Though continuing to work in the cause, and I was, quite unexpectedly on my own part, proposed and elected chairman, it came in consequence my duty to represent the committee in the House of Commons, sometimes by putting questions to the government, sometimes as the recipient of the questions, more or less provocative, addressed by individual members to myself, but especially as speaker in the important debate originated in the session of 1866 by Mr. Buxton, and the speech I then delivered is that which I should probably select as the best of my speeches in Parliament. For more than two years we carried on the combat, trying every avenue legally open to us to the courts of criminal justice. A bench of magistrates in one of the most Tory counties in England dismissed our case. We were more successful before the magistrates at Bow Street, which gave an opportunity to the Lord Chief Justice of the Queen's Bench, Sir Alexander Cockburn, for delivering his celebrated charge, which settled the law of the question in favor of liberty, as far as it is in the power of a judge's charge to settle it. There, however, our success ended, for the old Bailey Grand Jury, by throwing out our bill, prevented the case from coming to trial. It was clear that to bring English functionaries to the bar of a criminal court for abuses of power committed against Negroes and mulattoes was not a popular proceeding with the English middle classes. We had, however, redeemed, so far as lay in us, the character of our country by showing that there was, at any rate, a body of persons determined to use all the means which the law afforded to obtain justice for the injured. We had elicited from the highest criminal judge in the nation an authoritative declaration that the law was what we maintained it to be, and we had given an emphatic warning to those who might be tempted to similar guilt hereafter, that, though they might escape the actual sentence of a criminal tribunal, they were not safe against being put to some trouble and expense in order to avoid it. Colonial governors and other persons in authority will have a considerable motive to stop short of such extremities in future. End of section 20. Recording by Tony Richardson. Section 21. Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 6. View of the Remainder of My Life. As a matter of curiosity, I kept some specimens of the abusive letters, almost all of them anonymous, which I received while these proceedings were going on. They are evidence of the sympathy felt with the brutalities in Jamaica by the brutal part of the population at home. They graduated from coarse jokes, verbal and pictorial, up to threats of assassination. Among other matters of importance in which I took an active part, but which excited little interest in the public, to deserve particular mention, I joined with several other independent liberals in defeating an extradition bill introduced at the very end of the session of 1866, and by which, though surrender avowedly for political offenses was not authorized, political refugees, if charged by a foreign government with acts which are necessarily incident to all attempts at insurrection, would have been surrendered to be dealt with by the criminal courts of the government against which they had rebelled, thus making the British government an accomplice in the vengeance of foreign despotisms. The defeat of this proposal led to the appointment of a select committee, in which I was included, to examine and report on the whole subject of extradition treaties, and the result was that in the Extradition Act, which passed through Parliament after I had ceased to be a member, opportunity is given to anyone whose extradition is demanded of being heard before an English court of justice to prove that the offense with which he is charged is readily political. The cause of European freedom has thus been saved from a serious misfortune, and our own country from a great iniquity. The other subject to be mentioned is the fight kept up by a body of advanced liberals in the session of 1868. On the bribery bill of Mr. Disraeli's government, in which I took a very active part, I had taken counsel with several of those who had applied their minds most carefully to the details of the subject. Mr. W. D. Christie, Sergeant Pulling, Mr. Chadwick, as well as bestowed much thought of my own for the purpose of framing such amendments and additional clauses as might make the bill really effective against the numerous modes of corruption, direct and indirect, which might otherwise, as there was much reasoning to fear, be increased instead of diminished by the Reform Act. We also aimed at engrafting on the bill measures for diminishing the mischievous burden of what are called the legitimate expenses of elections. Among our many amendments was that of Mr. Fawcett for making the returning officers' expenses a charge on the rates instead of on the candidates. Another was the prohibition of paid canvassers and the limitation of paid agents to one for each candidate. 
a third was the extension of the precautions and penalties against bribery to municipal elections which are well known to be not only a preparatory school for bribery at parliamentary elections but an habitual cover for it the conservative government however when once they had carried the leading provision of their bill for which i voted and spoke the transfer of the jurisdiction in election from the house of commons to the judges made a determined resistance to all other improvements and after one of our most important proposals that of mr fawcett had actually obtained a majority they summoned the strength of their party and threw out the clause in a subsequent stage the liberal party in the house was greatly dishonored by the conduct of many of its members in giving no help whatever to this attempt to secure the necessary conditions for an honest representation of the people with their large majority in the house they could have carried all the amendments or better ones if they had better to propose but it was late in the session members were eager to set about their preparations for the impending general election and while some such as sir robert anstruther honorably remained at their post though rival candidates were already canvassing their constituency a much greater number placed their electioneering interests before their public duty many liberals are looked with indifference on legislation against bribery thinking that it merely diverted public interest from the ballot which they considered very mistakenly as i expect it will turn out to be a sufficient and the only remedy from these causes our fight though kept up with great vigor for several nights was wholly unsuccessful and the practices which we sought to render more difficult prevailed more widely than ever in the first general election held under the new electoral law in the general debates on mr disraeli's reform bill my participation was limited to the one speech already mentioned but i made the bill an occasion for bringing the two great improvements which remained to be made in representative government formerly before the house and the nation one of them was personal or as it is called with equal propriety proportional representation i brought this under the consideration of the house by an expository and argumentative speech on mr hare's plan and subsequently i was active in support of the very imperfect substitute for that plan which in a small number of constituencies parliament was induced to adopt this poor makeshift had scarcely any recommendation except that it was a partial recognition of the evil which it did so little to remedy as such however it was attacked by the same fallacies and required to be defended on the same principles as a really good measure and its adoption in a few parliamentary elections 
as well as the subsequent introduction of what is called the cumulative vote in the elections for the london school board have had the good effect of converting the equal claim of all electors to a proportional share in the representation from a subject of merely speculative discussion into a question of practical politics much sooner than would otherwise have been the case this assertion of my opinions on personal representation cannot be credited with any considerable or visible amount of practical result it was otherwise with the other motion which i made in the form of an amendment to the reform bill and which was by far the most important perhaps the only really important public service i performed in the capacity of a member of parliament a motion to strike out the words which were understood to limit the electoral franchise to males and thereby to admit to the suffrage all women who as householders or otherwise possessed the qualification required of male electors for women not to make their claim to the suffrage at the time when the elective franchise was being largely extended would have been to abjure the claim altogether and a movement on the subject was begun in eighteen sixty six when i presented a petition for the suffrage signed by a considerable number of distinguished women but it was as yet uncertain whether the proposal would obtain more than a few stray votes in the house and when after a debate in which the speakers on the contrary side were conspicuous by their feebleness the votes recorded in favor of the motion amounted to seventy-three made up by pairs and tellers to above eighty the surprise was general and the encouragement great the greater too because one of those who voted for the motion was mr bright a fact which could only be attributed to the impressions made on him by the debate as he had previously made no secret of his non-concurrence in the proposal the time appeared to my daughter miss helen taylor to have come for forming a society for the extension of the suffrage of women the existence of the society is due to my daughter's initiative its constitution was planned entirely by her and she was the soul of the movement during the first years though delicate health and superabundant occupation made her decline to be a member of the executive committee many distinguished members of parliament professors and others and some of the most eminent women of whom the country can boast became members of the society a large proportion either directly or indirectly through my daughter's influence she having written the greater number and all the best of the letters by which adhesions was obtained even when those letters bore my signature in two remarkable instances those of miss nightingale and miss mary carpenter the reluctance of those ladies had at first felt to come forward for it was not on their past difference of opinion 
was overcome by appeals written by my daughter though signed by me associations for the same object were formed in various local centres manchester edinburgh birmingham bristol and glasgow and others which have done much valuable work for the cause all the societies take the title of branches of the national society for women's suffrage but each has its own governing body and acts in complete independence of the others i believe i have mentioned all that is worth remembering of my proceedings in the house but their enumeration even if complete would give but an inadequate idea of my occupations during that period and especially of my time taken up by correspondence for many years before my election to parliament i had been continually receiving letters from strangers mostly addressed to me as a writer on philosophy and either propounding difficulties or communicating thoughts on subjects connected with logic or political economy in common i suppose with all who are known as political economists i was a recipient of all the shallow theories and absurd proposals by which people are perpetually endeavoring to show the way to universal wealth and happiness by some artful reorganization of the currency when there were signs of sufficient intelligence in the writers to make it worth while attempting to put them right i took the trouble to point out their errors until the growth of my correspondence made it necessary to dismiss such persons with very brief answers many however of the communications i received were more worthy of attention than these and in some oversights of detail were pointed out in my writings which i was thus enabled to correct correspondence of this sort naturally multiplied with the multiplication of the subjects on which i wrote especially those of a metaphysical character but when i became a member of parliament i began to receive letters on private grievances on every imaginable subject that related to any kind of public affairs however remote from my knowledge or pursuits it was not my constituents in westminster who laid this burden on me they kept with remarkable fidelity to the understanding on which i had consented to serve i received indeed now and then an application from some ingenuous youth to procure for him a small governmental appointment but these were few and how simple and ignorant the writers were was shown by the fact that the applications came in about equally whichever party was in power my invariable answer was that it was contrary to the principles on which i was elected to ask favors of any government but on the whole hardly any part of the country gave me less trouble than my own constituents the general mass of correspondence however swelled into an oppressive burthen at the time and thenceforth a great proportion of all my letters including many which found their way into the newspapers were not written by me but by my daughter 
at first merely from her willingness to help in disposing of a mass of letters greater than i could get through without assistance but afterwards because i thought the letters she wrote superior to mine and more so in proportion to the difficulty and importance of the occasion even those which i wrote myself were generally much improved by her as is also the case with all the more recent of my prepared speeches of which and of some of my published writings not a few passages and those the most successful were hers while i remained in parliament my work as an author was unavoidably limited to the recess during that time i wrote besides the pamphlet on ireland already mentioned the essay on plato published in the edinburgh review and reprinted in the third volume of dissertations and discussions and the address which conformably to custom i delivered to the university of st andrews whose students had done me the honor of electing me to the office of rector in this discourse i gave expression to many thoughts and opinions which had been accumulating in me through life respecting the various studies which belong to a liberal education their uses and influences and the mode in which they should be pursued to render their influences most beneficial the position taken up vindicating the high educational value alike of the old classic and new scientific studies on even stronger grounds than are urged by most of their advocates and insisting that it is only the stupid inefficiency of the usual teaching which makes those studies be regarded as competitors instead of allies was i think calculated not only to aid and stimulate the improvement which was happily commenced in the national institutions for higher education but to diffuse juster ideas than we often find even in highly educated men on the conditions of the highest mental cultivation during this period also i commenced and completed soon after i had left parliament the performance of a duty to philosophy and to the memory of my father by preparing and publishing an edition of the analysis of the phenomena of the human mind with notes bringing up the doctrines of that admirable book to the latest improvements in science and in speculation this was a joint undertaking the psychological notes being furnished in about equal proportions by mr bain and myself while mr grote supplied some valuable contributions on points in the history of philosophy incidentally raised and dr andrew findlater supplied the deficiencies in the book which had been occasioned by the imperfect philological knowledge of the time when it was written having been originally published at a time when the current of metaphysical speculation ran in a quite opposite direction to the psychology of experience and association the analysis had not obtained the amount of immediate success which it deserved though it had been made a deep impression on many individual minds 
and had largely contributed through those minds to create that more favorable atmosphere for an association psychology of which we now have the benefit admirably adapted for a class book of the experience of metaphysics it only required to be enriched and in some cases corrected by the results of more recent labors in the same school of thought to stand as it now does in company with mr bain's treatises at the head of the systematic works on analytic psychology in the autumn of eighteen sixty eight the parliament which passed the reform act was dissolved and at the new election of for westminster i was thrown out not to my surprise nor i believe to that of my principal supporters though in the few days preceding the election they had become more sanguine than before that i should not have been elected at all would not have required any explanation what excites curiosity is that i should have been elected the first time or having been elected then should have been defeated afterwards but the efforts made to defeat me were far greater on the second occasion than on the first for one thing the tory government was now struggling for existence and success in any contest was of more importance to them then too all persons of tory feelings were far more embittered against me individually than on the previous occasion many who had at first been either favorable or indifferent were vehemently opposed to my re-election as i had shown in my political writings that i was aware of the weak points in democratic opinions some conservatives it seems had not been without hopes of finding me an opponent of democracy as i was able to see the conservative side of the question they presumed that like them i could not see any other side yet if they had really read my writings they would have known that after giving full weight to all that appeared to me well grounded in the arguments against democracy i unhesitatingly decided in its favor while recommending that it should be accompanied by such institutions as were consistent with its principle and calculated to ward off its inconveniences one of the chief of these remedies being proportional representation on which scarcely any of the conservatives gave me any support some tory expectations appeared to have been founded on the approbation i had expressed of plural voting under certain conditions and it has been surmised that the suggestion of this sort made in one of the resolutions which mr disraeli introduced into the house preparatory to his reform bill a suggestion which meeting with no favor he did not press may have been occasioned by what i had written on the point but if so it was forgotten that i had made it an express condition that the privilege of that plurality of votes should be annexed to education not to property 
and even so had approved of it only on the supposition of universal suffrage how utterly inadmissible such plural voting would be under the suffrage given by the present reform act is proved to any who could otherwise doubt it by the very small weight which the working classes are found to possess in elections even under the law which gives no more votes to any one elector than to any other while i thus was far more obnoxious to the tory interests and to many conservative liberals than i had formerly been the course i pursued in parliament had by no means been such as to make liberals generally at all enthusiastic in my support it has already been mentioned how large a proportion of my prominent appearances had been on questions on which i had differed from most of the liberal party or about which they cared little and how few occasions there had been on which the line i took was such as could lead them to attach any great value to me as an organ of their opinions i had moreover done things which had excited in many minds a personal prejudice against me many were offended by what they called the persecution of mr airy and still greater offence was taken at my sending a subscription to the election expenses of mr bradlaugh having refused to be at any expense for my own election and having had all its expenses defrayed by others i felt under a peculiar obligation to subscribe in my turn where funds were deficient for candidates whose election was desirable i accordingly sent subscriptions to nearly all the working-class candidates and among others to mr bradlaugh he had the support of the working classes having heard him speak i knew him to be a man of ability and he had proved that he was the reverse of a demagogue by placing himself in strong opposition to the prevailing opinion of the democratic party on two such important subjects as malthusianism and personal representation men of this sort who while sharing the democratic feelings of the working classes judged political questions for themselves and had courage to assert their individual convictions against popular opposition were needed as it seemed to me in parliament and i did not think that mr bradlaugh's anti-religious opinions even though he had been intemperate in the expression of them ought to exclude him in subscribing however to his election i did what would have been highly imprudent if i had been at liberty to consider only the interest of my own re-election and as might be expected the utmost possible use both fair and unfair was made of this act of mine to stir up the electors of westminster against me to these various causes combined with an unscrupulous use of the usual pecuniary and other influences on the side of my tory competitor while none were used on my side it is to be ascribed 
that I failed at my second election after having succeeded at the first. No sooner was the result of the election known than I received three or four invitations to become a candidate for other constituencies, chiefly counties. But even if success could have been expected, and this without expense, I was not disposed to deny myself the relief of returning to private life. I had no cause to feel humiliated at my rejection by the electors, and if I had, the feeling would have been far outweighed by the numerous expressions of regret, which I received from all sorts of persons and places, and in a most marked degree from those members of the Liberal Party in Parliament with whom I had been accustomed to act. Since that time, little has occurred which there is need to commemorate in this place. I returned to my old pursuits and to the enjoyment of a country life in the south of Europe, alternating twice a year with the residence of some weeks or months in the neighborhood of London. I have written various articles in periodicals, chiefly in my friend Mr. Mosley's fortnightly review, have made a small number of speeches on public occasions, especially at the meetings of the Women's Suffrage Society, have published The Subjection of Women, written some years before with some additions by my daughter and myself, and have commenced the preparation of matter for future books, of which it will be time to speak more particularly if I live to finish them. Here, therefore, for the present, this memoir may close. End of section 21, recording by Tony Richardson. This is the end of the autobiography of John Stuart Mill.